Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 156 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at converting your current car to electric. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I wanted to say that I'm just a couple of weeks away from recording the roundtable episode for the end of the season. I've got the players identified, I've got the topics selected, I just need to get a time sorted for recording all this. Our main topic of discussion today is EV conversions. Typically, when I say EV conversions, the image that comes to mind, if any, is of someone taking a beloved old or classic petrol car, ripping out the engine and transmission, and replacing it with some usually Tesla running gear. And there are numerous examples of people doing that. The Ferrari 308, the Magnum PI car that was converted recently, went from being a standard prancing horse Ferrari to being something that beat the original spec in just about every metric, acceleration, torque, top speed, etc. So there is a case for conversions such as these. They keep cars that people might want to use for treasure purposes, but they also allow them to be run using renewable energy, and more importantly, keep them running after whatever date the government mandates for the removal of fossil fuel cars from the roads. But there is another side to this which people might not have realised. Converting pretty much any car to electric is entirely possible. The only thing really keeping you from doing this is usually cost. And one reason for this is that many EV conversions are done, as I stated earlier, using Tesla running gear. You buy a Tesla battery, a couple of motors, alongside all the electric gubbins needed to allow it to charge, etc., etc., and off you go. But is this something that everyone can do? Today, I'm joined by Richard Morgan from Electric Classic Cars. Richard has classic car DNA flowing through him, having owned, restored and raced various classics since the age of about 17, I think. He also worked in the energy efficiency industry for the past 20 plus years, helping some of the world's largest organisations reduce their carbon emissions. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for joining us. Good to see you. Not to see you, but to to be with you, Gary. (laughs) Um, I want to start off by asking the same question that I ask most of the guests that come on here. What was your path to EV ownership? What what got you from where you started to where you are now, very briefly? Uh, The energy efficiency industry that was in previously, we uh, had Toyota Priuses as company cars. And this is going back to, you know, very early days of Toyota Priuses. So we adopted hybrid technology, you know, probably 20 years ago now. And, you know, my daily driver was a company car, Toyota Prius. My weekend warriors were VW Beetles. And uh, I also used to race and rally uh, Porsche 914. So when uh, I finished that professional sort of like life, um, um, when we sold that business, my eyes sort of like turned to my classic cars in the workshop and thought, right, what can I do next? And um, we looked at a number of options for new electric cars. And having never really been a fan of new cars full stop, I was under impressed, let's say, with new car options like Nissan Leafs and BMW i3s. 
I just thought, well, how hard can it be to convert one of my own cars? So my first ever electric car was actually a car I converted to electric myself. So that's kind of how I got into it. All right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the company that you're with at the moment. How, how long has that company been in business? So oh, must be about seven years now, I reckon. It kind of spawned from uh, that first car that I converted. So I converted a, a VW Beetle. And um, um, when I converted that uh, Beetle, I kind of you know, got a lot of traction online and people were interested as to what I um, uh, you know, did and how I did it. So off the back of that first Beetle, which is my own, we got some, well, I say we, I got somebody contact me to say, hey, can you convert a Porsche 911 for me? Evenings and weekends, like hobby conversion on that. Halfway through that, I got somebody contact me regarding another vehicle to do. So I, I very rapidly, within about six months of converting my first car, started to get a waiting list, if you like. So um, I kind of took the decision to knock the day job on the head and you know, turn my hobby into my business. And it's now seven years later and we've got, um, yeah, a hobby that's got out of control, as my wife likes to call it, and uh, about um, 68 cars in the order book and, um, yeah, quite probably the largest converter of classic cars in the world now. And how many do you estimate that you've actually done in those years? Oh, it's upwards to a, probably around 100 cars now. Um, we've got uh, 18 cars in the workshop right now getting converted. And um, as I say, I think something like 68 cars in the order book that we've got to convert it. And, and they range everything from small little cars up to, you know, supercars. But they, they're all classic cars. They're all something from the 1950s through to maybe the early 80s. Um, my, my interest in classic cars wanes as soon as plastic was invented for dashboards. So let's be a little bit about the, the process. I mean, you, you've talked there about the sort of cars that come in are, are there specific vehicles that are more suited for this or is it possible to convert anyone given the fact that you you have a you know a fairly malleable cutoff line about plastic or no plastic on the uh, on the dashboards basically any car can be converted to electric really but it's just a scale of complexity i mean even modern cars can be converted to electric um okay you've got more um you know can communication going on so that's a, a computer protocol if you like this communicating to lots of things within the car but you know any car practically can be converted to electric it's just an order of magnitude of com complexity and the thing that i like about classic cars you know as far as conversions are concerned is they're very simple mechanically and electrically so when you are taking out an engine um you know there's no computer system on board that will you know have a problem with that so um yeah i mean i would say the, the simplest cars to convert are older cars um that have less complexity in them apart from that everything is just a, a scale of complexity up from there but there's certainly no car that can't be converted to electric so with the conversions that you do are they i'm going to use the word retrogradable and what i mean by that is I read somewhere that somebody did an Aston Martin conversion and they'd left everything as it was so that if a future owner came in and decided they didn't want the electric powertrain, they could take everything out and replace the engine, the transmission, the fuel tank and everything, and it would be exactly as it was before. Whereas I know a lot of conversions, you end up having to reroute things and maybe cut a new hole in somewhere to put a, a charge connector in or something like that. So 
where where do you fall on that sort of spectrum? So my feeling has always been that um, we are the custodians of these classic cars for the, the next generations. So you shouldn't be cutting and shutting and welding and you know doing modifications that uh, can't be reversed on a classic car. So all our conversions are completely bolt-in and reversible. So if anybody wanted to in future, not that anybody has, but if anybody did want to, they can take that electric drivetrain out and simply bolt back in the, the petrol or diesel engine and the fuel tank and the you know exhaust system. Um, so yeah, all our systems are completely bolt-in and reversible. We reuse um, existing engine mounts and other you know, infrastructure within the car. And that's, as I say, done primarily because you have to respect um, the fact that this is, you know, a piece of motoring heritage, if you like. You shouldn't be messing around and, and you know, modifying it. But also, from a regulation point of view in the UK, you uh, shouldn't be, you know, modifying, you know, a monocoque body or, or the chassis when you're doing a conversion because then you will invoke the wrath of the DVLA and the IVA point system in relation to radically altered vehicles. So, you know, it's a good idea to avoid doing any modifications in that respect. But from a moral and ethical point of view, you shouldn't really be, for, for certainly for classic cars, be, you know, cutting big holes in and, you know, welding new stuff into a, a vehicle when you're doing a, a conversion. And all, are all the conversions bespoke? By that, I mean, is there a basic kit that you put in or do you have to look at each particular vehicle that comes in and says, right, we'll need to do this kind of battery to fit into this chassis, uh, this sort of motor to replicate sort of what was there before? How, how does that work? It's probably somewhere in between is the reality. So you've got to bear in mind that because we've been going you know, the longest um, converting classic cars and, you know, have got quite a, a catalogue of cars that we've converted in the past. Uh, yeah, over the past seven years, we've evolved bolting kits for various repeat-type cars. So, you know, Fiat 500s, Porsche 911s, uh, Land Rovers, etc., Minis. You know, we've got a, a very evolved and tried-and-tested solution for a bolting kit to, you know, allow us and and um, uh, our partners to convert classic cars with those bolting kits. And those bolting kits are, are not like some kits out there that I've seen where it's just essentially a, you know, a, a list of parts, and you know, including a reel of cable, and you've got to wire it all up. And, you know, these kits that we're talking about here are completely tried-tested, you know, bench tested, we spun the motor up. It comes with a high voltage loom with all the connectors on, the low voltage loom. So all, all, you know, cut to length. So this is just simply something that you bolt in place, you know, mount the cables and plug the, um, the ends of those cables in. So it's a very simple kit. So we've developed bolting kits. Um, I think we've got something like seven um, maker models uh, of vehicles covered now and that you know, increases as time goes on. But equally, there's lots of cars that come into the workshop that, you know, we've never seen before. And, you know, I'd probably say two-thirds of the car that comes through the workshop, we've never seen before. I mean, we've got an Aston Martin, as you mentioned before, uh, in the workshop now. We've never done an Aston Martin V8 before. We've not done a Maserati Ghibli 1967 before. We've, you know, certainly not done Ferrari Testarossas before. So, you know, a lot of these cars come into the workshop. It's the first time we've, you know, seen them. So, then you have to go through that, um, you know, 
engineering and analysis and assessment phase where you're trying to figure out what motor can fit where, what battery pack can fit where, space-wise, but also weight-wise, and whether or not it's going to meet customers' expectations as far as the car is concerned, depending upon power and range. So it's quite an iterative process when you're converting a car you've never uh, converted before, but there's a lot of you know things to take into account when you're, when you're doing that. Are there any cars that come in and you look at them and you think... I really don't know how we're actually going to do this one. Or are they all pretty much, yeah, you know, we might have to finagle <laughs> this or that, but we could do it. Look, as far as challenges are concerned, engineers engineers love challenges. As, as far as, you know, moaning about, oh, this is going to be difficult, you know, this is going to be a nightmare. Inside, any engineer really is going, oh, you know, they're rubbing their hands together, thinking this is going to be great. How on earth are we going to do this? And there's certainly cars coming to the workshop like that. I mean, one that comes to mind is a, a BMW Assetta came in uh, a few years back. That was obviously a very small um, 1950s um, bubble car, tiny little thing, three wheels, powered by a, a glorified motorcycle engine. And you just look at that thinking, where on earth are you going to fit the batteries? You know, there's just no space whatsoever. So we do have a number of guys that come in where you just scratch your head for a bit and go, this is going to be a nightmare. But you overcome that, you figure it out, you work the problem through. And, uh, you know, in that BMW Assetta, for instance, we discovered that underneath the, I was going to say the front seat, but there's no back seats, there's only one seat. Underneath that front bench seat, there was a, quite a bit of space. So we ended up putting a decent sized battery underneath there. And again, that battery being nice and low, good for handling, but also, um, you know, give it a, a decent amount of range. But you also have to bear in mind, you can't put too big a battery pack in because, you know, that car can't carry the weight. So you always have to be mindful of your weight constraints of a vehicle as well as space and form factor of uh, available, um, you know, space where you can fit these things. Now that brings up an interesting question. If we if we go back to the Assetta for a second, when, when the, the owner came in and said, you know, I want this converting, at some point you will have gone back and said, right, we've had a look, we can put a battery in here, here and here. This is what the final range is probably going to be. And that's limited by the fact that we can't put this size of battery in, we've had to put that side of battery in. Is there a point there at which the customer might come back and go, actually, no, I don't think that's worth it. I was expecting more. Or do they all pretty much go, yeah, okay, that's that's fine. If that's what you can do, that's what you can do. It's pretty much the latter, to be fair. I mean, you know, if a customer comes in expecting a 500-mile a range out of a Mini, then their expectations are so far off that probably, you know, electric isn't for them yet. Um, you know, if they've really done their homework, they, they should know what kind of range is, you know, going to be not just practical for them, but also in line with uh, other vehicles. Um, you can't put a, a full Tesla Model S battery pack into a BMW Assetta, for instance. But on the flip side, it's a very small car. It only has three wheels for rolling resistance. So by the time we'd um, finished that car, I mean, bear in mind, a BMW Assetta is only really designed for urban use. You wouldn't see any on the motorways, so range is less of an issue. But for small cars like that, you know, you're not going to be able to fit in a, a massive battery pack. So from memory, I think the BMW Assetta was around about 100-mile range. Was it, John? Yeah. Yeah, about 100-mile range was the BMW Assetta, which, you know, in the city of London, you'll struggle to do 100 miles in a week, maybe even two. So for, for 
know, the, the use case of that car, it was pretty spot on. Talk to me about the timeline. Is this something that can be done in a weekend for a car or is this something that is going to take considerably longer than that? Well, again, I, I, I mentioned the kits before, the bolting kits. Um, we have converted a car in a day before. On our YouTube channel, for instance, there's a, a video of us converting a VW Beetle uh, in a day. Um, so it's just starting in the morning, finishing um, by uh, early evening. And, you know, that is definitely possible. There, but it all depends upon, you know, A, getting a very good bolting kit, and B, having a, you know, more than just one person working on that car. I mean, we had, you know, during the day, probably, you know, a maximum four or five people working on it. And, you know, that helps. Um, but in reality, if you're converting um, uh, um, a car, like, you know, as a business like we do, I'd say the average conversion time is a few months. But again, you know, there are certain instances where we can do it shorter than that. And certainly uh, lots of instances where it's a lot longer than that because, you know, we're, we're converting 18 cars at the same time. So everybody's not just working on one car all the time. It's a little bit like spinning plates. I mean, you work a little bit on one car, you know, get that to a certain point, then work on another car, then back to another car, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, worst case scenario, you can have a conversion take, you know, a year, for instance, um, depending upon the complexities of the um, uh, of the conversion, whether or not we converted it before, et cetera, and all the other options that that customer might want on that vehicle. And certainly if there's something new that we're trying, you know, like uh, vehicle, vehicle to home or whatever um, technology, then, you know, we've got to thoroughly test that at the end as well. So there's, you know, not just the build time and process, but also the, the testing phase as well, which can be uh, quite long. Do the conversions that you do, do you tend to fit CCS charging into all of them or do you limit it to AC or what? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, with CCS is something we fit to a lot of our conversions, but uh, you know, a number of people don't need it and don't want it or actually can't have it because of the voltage. Um, so yeah, CCS is definitely something that's revolutionized um, the conversion market, if you like. It's um, brought everything in line with uh, you know, a production car and, and in some instances better because the CCS is actually faster than some production cars that have CCS. But, you know, some customers, uh, like that BMW Assetto, for instance, that will never go near a CCS charge station in, it, in its life. It's, it's basically just, a, you know, going to be charged up at home, you know, maybe now and again at Tesco's when they go shopping. But it'll, it's never going to do long journeys and, and require CCS. So, you know, some cars don't have CCS because, you know, the customers are just never going to need that. But equally, CCS um, uh, only supports pack voltages of 200 volts or higher. So, you know, if you've got, you know, a pack voltage that is lower than that, you're not going to be able to use CCS. So from a technology or technical point of view, um, some vehicles can't use uh, CCS either. Well, let's let's dig into that a little bit um, in terms of, you've, you've mentioned the, the kits that you've sort of put together because you get certain cars that come in that are, you know, sort of repeat cars, the Beatles and that sort of thing. Uh, what, do you tend to stick to a specific type of running gear? So, for example, do you always use uh, sort of a, a Tesla kit or would you pick and choose from different parts suppliers? I'd say 40% of our builds use Tesla. 
Uh, a lot of people, you know, think we only use Tesla, but that's usually because the higher end bills, you know, high performance, etc., that you know look good on TV or YouTube, you know, and get that wow factor, normally have a Tesla motor in because they had the powerful motors. But in reality, I'd say forty percent of the um, cars, um, maybe less, have um, Tesla motors in, uh, and the others we have a you know a range of different motor manufacturers that uh, can you know, suppliers, motors, and within those manufacturers, they have, you know, different motor ranges, if you like. So I'd say we've got three main manufacturers we use for motors. And as I say, within those manufacturers, they've got a, um, you know, a, a catalogue of different motors that we can use. I, I mean, this is anecdotal, but I've got no reason to, to disbelieve it. Was it a Testarossa that's, or maybe one of the Magnum Ferraris, the, uh, was it the 308s that, that got trans... Um, converted and after the conversion had happened the performance on the vehicle was very much better than the original spec of the ferrari as it left the the factory is that something that you would expect on the on conversions that you do or does that very much depend yeah so we've done two ferrari 308s now and you're right we've also got the ferrari testarossa in fact we've got four if not five Ferrari Testarossas uh, that are getting converted at the moment. But yeah, the, the original Ferrari 308, um, everything was better, quite frankly, after we converted it. I mean, not just the reliability or, or the, you know, the running costs were less, but, you know, it, it, it weighed um, the same, if not slightly uh, lighter. Weight distribution was better. Handling was therefore better. Performance was insanely better. You know, the Ferrari 308 was never really a, um, you know, a powerful Ferrari um, uh, performance-wise. And when you stick a, a Tesla motor in and get 0-60 in whatever it was, four seconds, I mean, that's, you know, a lot, lot quicker than the original uh, Ferrari was, for instance. Uh, you mentioned Magnum PI there. Whenever you uh, saw the Ferrari doing a wheel spin, like at the opening sequence on Magnum PI, it was always on either gravel or grass, because they could never get it to wheel spin on tarmac. But with a Tesla motor in, yeah, you can get it to tarm, uh, to, to spin the wheels on on you know on sellotape if you wanted to. It's it's that much torque. <laughs> That's fantastic. I like that. Uh, so, of course, the big question that a lot of listeners are going to uh, going to want to know is what sort of cost are we talking here? And I realise it may be you know how long is a piece of string, but uh, do you want to give some ballpark figures, please? Yeah. So. Getting a car converted by a professional company is, you know, not going to be cheap. I mean, we've got to build certain safety standards like R100, for instance. Um, we've got to use, um, you know, uh, certain components to come with warranties, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, conversion cost for us would start at something like £20,000 for a small, you know, um, a car that you'd use around the city. Right the way up to, I think customers have probably spent, you know, maximum £120,000 with us to convert a, a car. So it's not a cheap process um, to convert um, a, a, a classic car by any means, but there are huge benefits once you've once you've done that. But if anybody is looking to convert a classic car from a you know a financial economic point of view to say, well, you know, if I do this, what's the payback period going to be? That's never going to happen. I mean, it's a bit like saying, you know, if I'm going to build a, you know, a, a patio, a new patio on my house, what's the payback period going to be? You know, you do it because it's, you know, A, the right thing to do, and B, it's going to make your life 
more enjoyable and, and you'll get more enjoyment out of that asset. It's, it's um, you know, primarily not an economic uh, decision that uh, clients uh, choose to convert the cars. It's, it's all the other benefits. What are the insurance implications for a classic car that's been converted to, uh, to electric? So it's pretty similar to modifying a, um, any car. So, I mean, you can't go to, you know, your average, um, you know, insurance company that you insure your focus with. You'd go to a, a specialist like, you know, um, Adrian Flux or Footman James or whatever that already insure classic cars, but also they insure modified classic cars. So, for instance, if you put a, a Honda Vita engine into a Mini, you know, they insure uh, cars like that. So you just have to go to insurance companies that are used to dealing with modified vehicles. Um, and it's as simple as that. From a business point of view, you've obviously talked about the orders that are on the books there. So I would imagine you've got enough work for the foreseeable future, but can you take on more work with the current staff or do you need more engineers slash mechanics, etc.? Yeah, we're always expanding. I mean, uh, you know, our order book is always growing and, you know, the uh, staff here is always growing in line with that. Uh, we're just about to extend and expand the workshop here by another 50% as well. So, you know, the, the potential, uh, our future potential for this market is absolutely huge. And for us to maintain our market position as the, the, the leaders in this marketplace, we need to, you know, grow at some pace. So yeah, we're always um, uh, growing the business with staff, and you know, uh, expanding, um, and also expanding our partnerships with other companies around the world that we supply kits to. We supply you know Land Rover kits um, to the US. There's a company out there called ECD that we um, uh, ship lots of Land Rover kits to. Um, there's Gildred Racing in California that is a mini specialist. We ship mini uh, kits out to them. So we're always growing our partnership uh, program as well, which um, is another way we expand the uh, business. So what, as a business owner, what keeps you awake at night when thinking about the business that you're running and electric car conversions in general? Um, keeps me awake at night, I would say, uh, just to, you know, the excitement, I suppose, of the potential uh, growth of this market. I mean, you know, the classic car market that I've been in for, you know, 30-odd years, it's, it's kind of slowly been shrinking as, you know, there's less classic cars out there and the people that are into classic cars get older, etc. I mean, there's, there's precious few younger people getting into classic cars uh, like there was when I was younger. So, you know, with that classic car kind of slowly, slowly shrinking, this electrification industry um, that's sprung up has kind of injected a new lease of life into it. And, you know, it's uh, so things that keep me up at night are less, you know, worries and concerned. It's more the adrenaline of excitement that keeps me up at night. The fact that I just, you know, have so much, um, you know, uh, enthusiasm for the future of the classic car market because having owned and driven, you know, electric converted cars now for seven years, you know, I know that they're so much better than when they were petrol. And, you know, if I can be converted, being a petrol head for the, you know, the previous 23 years, a huge petrol head, if I can be converted to electric conversions in classic cars, then I know everybody else can. Uh, uh, so that's probably what keeps me up at night. The excitement that knowing the potential for this market is just insanely huge. 
So that's the point of view from someone who's done literally hundreds of these. They're professionally done, different sized batteries, vehicles that can be taken out on the road and run in a day-to-day -day setting. But as you can hear from Moggy's discussion, these are not cheap. The man hours alone mean that this, this can be an expensive proposition and Tesla running gear doesn't come cheap either. So is there an alternative, a cheaper, less complicated DIY option? Well, yes, there is. I'm joined by Tom Cheeseright. Uh, Tom's Twitter bio says he's, uh, quote, an applied futurist, sharing a clearer vision of tomorrow on stage, on air, in words, and in boardrooms, close quotes. Well, that's as may be, but we're here today to talk to him because he's one of those crazy people who decided to convert a car to electric by himself. Welcome, Tom. Happy to have you here today. Let's start with the big question. What car did you convert? So we looked around at who was doing kit cars, or rather body conversions, first of all. We, I wanted something relatively modern so that it had some safety features. If you're going to be moving your kids around in it, and by and large, my car only gets used for taking one kid or another to a club or some variation on that theme. Um, I wanted some safety features, but I wanted these classic looks. So it was really a question of who does body conversions for modern cars that might work. So initially we looked at MX-5, sort of you know first or second generation MX-5s, but they have a horrible feature whereby the mechanicals are very robust, um, but the bodies rot. Um, and so that was no good at all. I didn't want a working engine and a rotten body. I wanted a working body and a rotten engine. Um, so instead, we went down the German route and looked at BMW Z3s, and there's a great series of conversion kits for those to allow you to make them very pretty and retro. Uh, and so I bought an, uh, a, an MOT failure uh, BMW Z3. In the end, it turned out to be very rotten in the body as well. <laughs> um, but we got past all that with, with, with sufficient application of welder and steel. Well, now, obviously, uh, as this is... Uh, an episode about electric vehicle conversions, there are two paths to do this. And one is you could have taken the vehicle to somebody who does this professionally and has got all the equipment and all that sort of stuff. Or as you did, you decided to do it yourself. Now, I understand you're talking about the, the challenge on that, but was there ever a point where you thought, actually, I'm going to give this to the pros and let them do it? No. And, and for the simple reason that I wasn't in a financial position to do so. It's not a cheap process to have somebody else do it because even if you are using, as I did, sort of recycled parts, the number of hours involved at any sort of sensible hourly rate mean that the costs are going to add up. Uh, and having done it, I, you know, I'm very conscious of why it costs a lot of money to have a professional do this because even if you ignore the cost of the hardware, it is incredibly time consuming. All right. Well, let's, let's dig into the details a little bit on that. Um, Talk me through the process of taking this BMW, bringing it in. And so you started with the MOT failure and you ended up with a, uh, an electric vehicle at the end of it. What was the process? So we, I mean, the first thing you do is, is take the motor out. Um, you know, you take the motor out, you take the fuel tank out, um, you take all of the work, the ancillaries associated with that out, which does cause some problems down the line because you're taking out things like vacuum so you've got no vacuum to drive a brake booster you're taking out things like the power steering pumps so you've got no power steering but you take all of that stuff that's connected to the old combustion engine out fuel lines all of that so you've got an empty shell uh, and then the question is what do you replace it with and you know actually we started with what do you replace it with before we emptied the shell 
and, and you, you can go down a number of routes here. You can buy a, a kit off the shelf, and this is probably going to cost you, you know, upwards of £10,000. Or you can use OEM parts. So you can use parts from wrecked or you know, end-of-life cars. Uh, and that's what we did. Um, so we bought a motor that used to live in a Mitsubishi out under FEV. They have three electric motors in them. We bought one of the smaller front motors. You buy an inverter, which is a bit that takes the DC current from the batteries and turns it into AC and controls the motor. Uh, and you buy some batteries. And we bought an inverter that used to live in a Prius. Uh, they're very plentiful, they're very cheap, and they're massively over-engineered. Uh, and we bought some batteries from a BMW hybrid. Initially, we bought about um, eight kilowatt hours of batteries for BMW hybrid. And then to control all that, you need some sort of circuitry and software. Uh, and we use a thing called Open Inverter, um, which is this open source project. Um, and you can buy boards that run this software that effectively lobotomize the existing brain from uh, whatever OEM hardware you buy and take or take control of it you know, externally to allow you to reuse stuff from whether it's a Toyota, Lexus, uh, a Tesla, whatever brand of EV, Nissan Leaf. You can effectively reuse those parts now, but without reusing the whole car. And uh, we put all that together on the bench. I say we because my, my eldest daughter was heavily involved in this project from day one. She was off school and during lockdown, she did a lot of the welding, um, helped me dismantle the battery pack, which, you know, some people might say is not the best health and safety approach with a then 10-year-old. But, you know, I taught her some things about high voltages. And yeah, we, we got it running on the bench, first of all. We got the motor spinning. Uh, and then we decided to bolt up the motor to the existing gearbox. We've got a very unusual thing, which is an EV with a manual gearbox. Um, which works absolutely fine. There's no clutch in there. The two are just just um, connected together with a coupler we, we made in the backyard. I did have to buy a lathe to then remake the coupler because it wasn't straight. Yeah, we we, we knocked it all up with a with a welder we found in a skip, uh, mostly architectural steel actually. Uh, and within a bit, it took us 15 months all in um, to the point where we had a running car with relatively limited range, about 25 mile range. Um, that had got through its MOT. It only took us about a year to get it up to a point of a running car, but it took us about 15 months to get it to the point of actually going through its MOT. So if I sort of rehash what you've said there, you've got uh, BMW hybrid batteries, you've got motors from an Outlander FEV, you've got an inverter from a Prius, and you've got open source software controlling it all. Was there ever a point at which you thought, are we sure all these are going to work together? Oh, I mean, daily. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but the nice thing about this is there is a community there. You're, you're never alone as a, as a, as a nerd in, in any domain these days, thanks to the internet. Uh, and that's particularly true of the, of the DIY EV car sort of community. It's very active. It's very rich. It's full of a lot of people who are much smarter than me. Uh, and through a combination of, you know, forum posts and jumping on Skype calls with some of the members of the community that I got closer to, um, we got there. And yeah, most people have trodden something of this path before. So no one had used the motor and inverter combination that we ended up using. That was novel. So we, we were we, a little bit sort of breaking new ground there. But I found other people who'd spotted these two things look like good value and were doing the same thing at the same time. So um, other people were sort of you know, plowing the same path at the same time. And, and through that community, through that support, we got there. I mean, I haven't even covered you know, half the range. There's a power steering pump out of a Vauxhall Zafira. Um, there's a brake booster pump out of an Audi. Chargers also out of a Mitsubishi Outlander. I mean, it really is a Frankenstein's monster of a vehicle, but it works. And, you know, and it's, it's safe. It's MOT'd. And, you know, although I, I, 
I deliberately present myself as a little bit of an idiot on when I'm doing sort of YouTube videos and stuff. I do have a degree in mechatronic engineering. I'm not a total novice and I'm very confident that what I've built is safe. As I say, otherwise I wouldn't let my kids ride in it. Good points. Well made. I uh, <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, now, I saw an Aston Martin conversion recently where the people who'd done it had left everything as it was so that a future owner, if they decided, could take the batteries and the motor out and replace it with the original engine. So it was exactly as it was uh, before. So they'd taken the choice not to make any physical structural en- uh, structural changes. Now, when you were looking at the changes that you had to do for yours, are you in that similar situation? If, if needed, could you get the old stuff or a similar version of the old stuff, uh, you know, the, the transmission, the fuel tank, the engine, could you put that back in or have you modified the structure of the vehicle in such a way that that can no longer happen? No, and, and I haven't modified the structure for a couple of reasons, or at least I didn't at first. I mean, firstly, is the DVLA really frowns on that. Uh, and right now, it is the DVLA is not very popular in the DIY EV community because um, it is trying, well, it's basically pushing inspections on everybody looking to re-register their car as electric. And even the most minor um, modifications to the structure of the car are leading the DVLA to force people through an IVA, an individual vehicle approval. And there was a story the other day of someone who drilled a hole in their boot floor, I think, to pass a cable or a bolt through. Uh, and even if they offered to weld it up, they wouldn't. They still wanted them. They were still forcing them through to have an IVA um, to allow their car back on the road. So most people who are doing this now, certainly in the UK are trying to keep any structural changes to a minimum or actually doing none at all. And so in my case, you know, I have made some changes since. I actually wanted to um, locate my battery pack more securely than I initially had it when it was first looked at. Uh, and so I've added a, you know, a couple of, uh, a couple of tabs to give more mechanical location to my front battery pack um, to make sure it's sort of more, you know, it can't possibly move around. But other than that, it's completely standard. And those could be very easily removed and the car returned to it if you really wanted to. Uh, not that it's worth it for a 600 pound Rotten Z3, but if you really wanted to return it to its previous status, you absolutely could. Uh, and I think, you know, with my next project, and I'm working on my second swap already and I'm doing another Z3. And the plan is to have a summer car, uh, with a soft top and then do a winter car with a body swap to a, to a hard top sort of classic GT. I'm not going to make any modifications at all to the body. Uh, I'm going to find other ways to mount things without making these these chassis modifications because you know if the DVL when I choose, come to re-register that one as electric, you know the DVLA may choose to inspect it and, and force me down through an individual vehicle approval if I've made any changes. So where is the charger on the Z3? Is it where the old uh, fuel tank nozzle used to be? No. So at the moment, because there's so much space under the bonnet for Z3, and that was one of the one of the things that really appealed. You know, they they usually usually have a, a dirty grey iron block uh, straight six in there, plus all the ancillary. So there's an enormous amount of space under the bonnet. So actually, what I've got in the current car is my battery pack, my motor, inverter, and charger, and all my ancillaries under the bonnet. And there's still a load of space in there. Now I don't want to put another battery pack in there because of, of, of weight distribution concerns. The second battery pack is going to go in the back. But yeah, all the important stuff is under the bonnet. And because of that great big space, it makes it very easy to work on as well. So what exactly have you done in terms of the charger? Is it CCS? Uh, is it just AC? What uh, what charge speed can you get from uh 
from the charger that's in there in the inverter. So right now I'm just doing AC. I've actually only got a Type 1 socket on there and a Type 1 charger at home. Again, within the full DIY spirit, and I picked up an old pod point for £30 on Facebook Marketplace uh, and have my local Sparky fit it. So that was a very cheap home charging option. I am fitting uh, Chadamo to it when it's gone through its body. It's actually back in the garage at the moment. I'm, I've rented some workspace because I got into this so much. And I did the first project completely on the drive. Uh, I've now got it undercover and I'm doing the body transformation and I will be fa- fitting Chadamo. CCS is now a possibility. Um, the BMW i3 charge controller has been reverse engineered. Um, CCS is, a, is an awkward standard to do for a DIYer. Uh, but the community has managed it successfully, so I could add CCS if I wanted to, and I probably will add CCS on my new project. The aim of that one is to have a much larger battery pack. I'm probably going to go to somewhere between sort of 28 and 36 kilowatt hours, aiming to have 100 mile plus range and fast charging, uh, so that that will be able to get down to my folks in the Midlands from here in Manchester. So from the 8 kilowatt hours that you've got there at the moment, what sort of range are you getting uh, on the Z3 at the moment? So that's, I'm getting about 20 to 25. That's with no regen turned on at the moment. The the open inverter firmware that runs my car is iterating constantly. There are new upgrades running all the time. Um, people are extracting more power from the motor. People are making regen work better. And so, you know, I wasn't, I didn't really need regen. You know, the places I go in the car are to take my eldest daughter to ballet, uh, my youngest daughter to gymnastics, or to take myself up to my garage to go and work on cars. So I don't really need more than about 10 miles range at any point, and I certainly don't need fast charging. So yeah, 25 miles is fine for now. If I added regen and some of the recent tuning, I could probably squeeze a bit more out of that. But actually, I've got a second pack ready to go in. Uh, The price of batteries, I know the price of new EVs is is, is climbing, um, but the price of secondhand batteries is falling constantly. And so I've got a second pack ready to go in, which will double that up to about 50 miles range. Oh, fantastic. Uh, what, what, excuse me, what was the trickiest part of the project? The trickiest part of the project for me was um, that sort of, that ground between electronics and computing. I'm a sort of semi-competent amateur at both. Uh, and so I was never quite sure which one I'd got wrong. Um, and so when I was troubleshooting, it was really challenging, and it still is to this day, to work out where the fault lies, whether I've got a connection wrong, whether I've got something like the resolver, which, which you know, the resolver monitors the position of the motor uh, and returns very precise information about where the motor is back to the motor controller. Um, you know, if you get the phases of the motor wrong or the, you know, the uh, resolver wired up wrong. You're never quite sure exactly, you know, what's not playing ball or whether it's something in software or one of the many parameters you've got wrong. It's, it's that uncertainty really that, that really caused me the, the most trouble. I, you know, I got, I wouldn't say I'm a good welder by any stretch of the imagination because I, but I got reasonably confident with the welding torch and I'm, I have a, a good sense for the mechanical structure and what was required there. But yeah, that that sort of hinterland between software and electronics was was where I struggled the most. How long did the whole thing take start to finish and how much did it cost? So the whole project from the, when we bought the first component, we decided to do it and we, we bought the motor first of all. I remember I was in the back garden with my daughter and I saw a motor pop up on eBay. 
at what at the time I thought was a good price, which I think we paid £400 for it, I'd now be paying less than half that for the, for the sorts of motor I'm using. And but at the time it seemed like a good price, I bought a motor for £400. And from that point to having a successful MOT, it took me, I think, four attempts to get through the MOT. <laughs> but for it to a successful MOT, it was 15 months. And price, cost it cost an interesting one. I could have been more frugal. I've got a friend who got on the road, including the car, for about £2,000, which is an incredible feat. Um, that was a, my friend Jamie with his bug plug, uh, which is a, an a, a EV swapped Volkswagen Beetle, um, a modern Beetle. He bought the car and everything uh, for, and did it all for about £2,000. For us, I think it was probably more like three, three and a half thousand pounds to get on the road, but we're going to spend a lot more than that making it really nice. And, and that's the difference, I think, is, you know, I'm building two cars that are going to be my cars for life. You know, I'm just going to basically have one on the road and one off the road upgrading constantly yeah, for probably the next, well, you know, fingers crossed the next 30 years, um, as, or as long as I can get on my back underneath the car. So yeah, I'm not too worried about the cost, but you can absolutely, I think, even if you're not, Quite as frugal as, as a Yorkshireman like Jamie, I think you can do. You can buy a car and convert it for about two and a half thousand pounds these days. Now, given that you've done one already, you're, you've got another one that you're looking at. What, what would you? What are you going to do differently on the next one that, uh, from what you did on the current one? So, one of the things that has slowly reawakened during this project is my abilities with computer-aided design. Uh, and so the the first car was built very much on the other sort of CAD. It was cardboard-aided design. It was you know sketching things out, making cardboard templates, and then copying them in steel. And I mean, in steel that was... Uh, I could only find one steel stockholder at the time. I actually found another, I found a, a, another one since. But the only steel stockholder I could find was selling mostly architectural steel. Um, so we were sketching things out and making them in, on an old, very, very tired Black & Decker workmate. Um, in the back garden with a, with a welder, as I say, that we pulled out of a skip uh, and restored. I'm, I'm slightly more sophisticated these days. I've now got a 3D scanner. My CAD skills have improved dramatically. And, and so the plan with the new project is to 3D scan the engine bay and all the components, design stuff on the computer, have parts fabricated off-site, so having, have things of CNC milled and machined, uh, and then have a much sort of cleaner, tidier assembly um, that bolts into all the existing mount points, which you know the, the existing car largely does, but without me sort of putting things in the car and sort of welding them in situ to make them fit, I'm actually you know, designing them properly and having them, them milled off site. So in theory, when it comes to assembly, they all just fit. And you know, in some ways, I'll miss the the rather DIY fabrication. Um, but I think it's time to, to, to take the, the car to the next level and make it look rather posher. Now, given that the next car is going to have a bigger battery, obviously that's going to cost more. But will the process that you've just outlined there with the 3D scanning, etc., will that decrease the, the perceived cost of doing that? Or is that going to be a more expensive proposition? I, I suspect it will be more expensive, although actually the batteries will be cheaper. Um, so when we bought our first battery pack, we paid about, I think we paid £800, and it's actually 7.6 kilowatt hours. We paid about you know, £100 per kilowatt hour. Um, I've already bought one of the packs for the new project, which is a later BMW hybrid um, pack. And the reason I like those is because of the way the connectors work. It's just really hard to electrocute yourself with them. I'm not saying it's impossible. 
Um, but it's much harder than with some of the other packs that have got open bus bars. They're all covered on the, on the BMW hybrid packs. Anyway, the later pack we bought is 12 kilowatt hours, uh, and we only paid £800 for that. So you're looking at sort of an extra five kilowatt hours for the same price. Uh, and actually, I've got friends who've paid even less than that. They're getting down to about £50 per kilowatt hour. Uh, you know, and, and if you're buying larger packs, you may be even going less than that now, down to about sort of £35, £40 per kilowatt hour. So in many ways, the, the second project, even with the cost of getting some parts professionally CNC machined, the second project may actually be cheaper, even though it's, it's probably going to be more powerful and have a longer range. That's very interesting because obviously battery prices are dropping down, but to get to the kind of levels that you're talking about there, that's, uh, that's quite impressive. Now, obviously, we're going to have a lot of people listening to this who are thinking, oh, yes, I, I, I quite fancy doing that myself. So uh, given what you've talked about today, given the kind of pitfalls that you've experienced, the, the, the issues that you've come across, what advice would you give for anyone listening to this who wants to convert their own car or a car that they're going to buy to electric? So part of me wants to say, look, anybody can do this. But I've interviewed lots of people for my podcast now called the IYEV Chat, interviewing other people who've built their own electric cars. And I've not met one yet who's done it successfully that doesn't have some sort of engineering background, whether that is they've got experience working on cars, so they understand the mechanical side and they feel confident to go and learn the electricals and the, and the little bit of code, or whether they've got um, the you know, electrical or computing side and they feel confident going to learn some of the more mechanical stuff. Y- you can bypass the gaps in your skills by getting external support and help. And lots of people have. They've, had, they've, you know, they've paid for paid fabricators to do some of the welding um, or they've bought in sort of more complete kits to take some of the electronics challenge out of it. But I think if you're going to do this successfully, both for your chances of success and for your own safety, I think having a good, you know, a reasonable background in some sort of engineering skill or practice is probably worthwhile. If you've got that, though, and particularly if you're someone who's historically tinkered with petrol engines, I'd really urge you to go and do this because it's got that spirit of the old hot rod era. You know, it feels like what I imagine it felt like in sort of those garages in California in the you know, sort of 40s and 50s with people, you know, pulling cars apart and, and, and making things that are, you know, sort of new and exciting and different and faster um, and, and really sort of being, it's, it's very innovative. You know, there's a lot of change happening. The, the idea of controlling the OEM parts without having to pull them to pieces and lobotomize them just wasn't there two years ago when I started my project. Whereas now you can literally just plug in, you can buy you know, a Nissan Leaf stack uh, which are very, again, plentiful, incredibly powerful. If you buy the whole stack, you don't have to do any soldering. You can just plug a control board into it uh, and take control of that stack in your machine. So you know, the electrical and, and coding requirements to do one of these projects is declining all the time. So there you have it. Take the expensive option, hand your car over to a professional converter You'll get new batteries, inverters, motors, all the technical expertise needed to convert your current vehicle, provided it's reasonably old, to run on batteries. Or take the much cheaper route, source components from various places, leverage the expertise of a growing community of people doing this themselves and sharing their learning online. It might take you longer, 
It'll certainly be more of a learning experience, but it will be cheaper. Which one would you go for? Many thanks to Richard and Tom for coming on to the show and discussing their passions with me. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. Housing is expensive everywhere, nowhere more so than in places like the United States. Plastic waste is a big problem. Lots of plastic is thrown away every day. I mean, Coca-Cola makes roughly 200,000 plastic bottles a minute worldwide. Well, what if we could link these two problems together and solve both of them? Well, a company called Azure is doing just that. Using massive 3D printing machines, they're creating prefabricated houses from recycled plastic and shipping them on site where they can be put together and connected to the foundations and utilities. There are a range of models on offer from the 120 square foot studio that costs about $27,000 up to the 900 square foot two bedroom house that goes for nearly $205,000. All models come with solar panels and heat pumps. Each building is made of 60% recycled plastics combined with other materials to add strength and durability. The houses look stylish and smart, and I'd love to have one of the smaller ones in my back garden as an office. That'd be pretty cool. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. ZapMap is the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK. Use it to search for available chargers, plan electric journeys, pay for charging on participating networks, and share updates with other EV drivers. ZapMap is free to download and use, with subscription plans for enhanced features, such as using ZapMap in-car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusing at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingTV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings. That's K-O dash fi.com slash evmusings. And you can do just that. Takes Apple Pay too. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want to read something on your Kindle. So you've got Electric. is available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent. And it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. Yeah, you've gone renewable. It's also available on Amazon for the same 99 pence. And it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review, preferably five stars, as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words, fuel tank out, batteries in. Hashtag, if you know, you know, nothing else. Thanks, as always, to my co-founder, Simon. You know, we were talking recently about how he was never actually that interested in school. He said, I know I look like the school swap, but that's just not me. So I was interested to know how he managed to get the sort of high-paying technical job he has without that in-depth formal education. He told me, You can bypass the gaps in your skills by getting external support and help, and lots of people have. Thanks for listening. Bye.